Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm really excited to have Nick Nielsen with us. He's a certified financial planner and has been in the financial planning world for almost 20 years now. He's the co-founder of Know My Plan. It's a comprehensive financial planning firm here in Charlotte. Uh, he works with all types of clients, but one of his specialties is working with sales executives. So we're going to take a little deeper dive into some of the differences between what sales executives might face on the financial planning world. But really, a lot of this advice is going to apply to many other professions as well. So Nick, welcome to the show. Adam, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, before we jump in, walk us through what made you focus on that sales executive niche? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of time your niche finds you and that's the way that it worked out for us. My business partner, Jeff and I, we went independent six years ago. And one of the reasons that we did that is we wanted to be able to control our marketing message. And at the beginning, it was a little bit of trial and error and some things worked and some things didn't, but the people who kept raising their hands and say, Hey, I'm interested in working with you were sales executives. So we weren't necessarily looking to work with sales executives in the beginning but they were embracing the content that they were putting out and they kind of self-selected. So then we just went all in on working with sales executives from there. Nice. What are some of the unique challenges that sales executives have for their financial planning versus a typical employee? Yeah, I think the two big ones are variable income. And the second would be stock options and how that affects the overall planning perspective. So if you think about someone who has a salary where they get paid $20,000 every single month, that obviously it's consistent. It's easy to plan for that. If you compare that to maybe a sales executive who gets paid $10,000 a month and then gets a $120,000 bonus, yes, the comp is still $240,000 for both people, but the financial planning that is required on the variable comp side is substantially different. What advice do you give that's different for the variable pay structure? So a commission or large bonuses, stock options, how does it kind of differ from your perspective for steady income? What are the key considerations they have to have that are different? Yeah, you have to have a plan to not end up with money on a credit card, basically, and not to be taking on unsecured debt. So you have to figure out how the cash flow works. And some people get their bonuses quarterly. Some people just get one bonus a year. And based upon the variability of that bonus structure, that's really going to tailor the plan to that particular person. And then if it's heavily incentivized on uh, company stock, what is the plan for that stock? Is this something that we can set it and forget it as far as when this comes in, we're going to liquidate it. And these dollars, we're going to flow through the plan on what we need to do. Or is this something that you really believe in and you want to keep an allocation to the company long-term. So even within variable comp, there's a significant variable in the type of structures that exist as far as when people get paid, how they get paid and what they're getting paid in. But some sales executives, they could have as much as 80% of their comp in company stock. And sometimes that works out wonderfully. And if it's a tech company, it's, it's really boom or bust. Most people have kind of their internal order of operations that they follow in terms of like where your next dollar goes. Does that differ drastically for a sales executive or anybody with a variable income versus kind of a steady income? Yeah, I do think it varies considerably. And I do think it's a lot easier for people who are just making a salary to set up the automated things, which I'm a huge believer in. 
you know, if the goal is to save $12,000 a year into a, a brokerage account, for example, to fund your plan, it is easier from a cash flow perspective to set up an automatic $1,000 a month contribution. Hey, on the first of every month, we buy the XYZ S&P 500 index fund. That works out really well. But sometimes, depending upon a sales executive's comp structure, they're basically just trying to get by all year until the bonus comes. And right. then you fund everything that you have to fund with that bonus. And the danger is that companies change compensation plans all the time. And sometimes people might be expecting a $100,000 bonus and get a $20,000 bonus. And I think the main message that I would give to sales executives, if they have a strong trajectory of moving up, is that there's just has to be some years where you have to give yourself some grace. And you're not going to be able to fund the plan the way that you wanted to fund it, but there are going to be periods of time when you can overfund the plan. So you can't beat yourself up in the years when you got the $20,000 bonus versus the $100,000 bonus. You try to have a plan to live within your means all year long to make sure that you don't end up with a big credit card bill at uh, at 18 or 24%. But there's just periods of time when you have to give yourself some grace, knowing that there's going to be other periods of time when you do have to do a little bit more heavy lifting. So I love working with sales executives because there is complexity with the plan. There is real planning that has to take place. And the one thing about sales executives, they understand that there is a sales process and there's really no fluff in the interactions between us. And I think that it really just leads to the most authentic relationships. There's value with service that's provided that I think they can probably get more than a lot of other people for sure. So they can kind of see the value from that. And we've talked about emergency funds, you know, separately off this call. Do you find that that is definitely another piece of different advice that you would give for sales executives versus non, since you have to obviously weather those storms in some cases? And do you think it still kind of falls in that stereotypical three to six month window that you'd like to have of expenses or does it grow from there for these types of executives? Yeah. So obviously, you know, the three to six month of expenses is a great benchmark. It's a great starting point, but the more variable the income is, the higher you need that emergency fund. The teacher that knows that their monthly expenses are $5,000 a month and they know they have $6,000 a month coming in or whatever the case a teacher's always going to have a job. A nurse is always going to have a job, right? They can always find employment. So maybe they don't have to have as robust of an emergency fund. But a sales executive, they might have to get that emergency fund up to 12 months or 18 months because there might be periods of time when things are really lean that they have to burn that emergency fund down, right, to the traditional three to six months. So with sales executives, and the more variable your income is, you have to make sure that you have access to money. So that's one of the things that I always talk about. I use the acronym uh, TAG, T-A-G, when we think about money is you want to make sure that it's tax advantaged. You want to make sure that you have access to your money. You want to make sure that there's growth potential. So the old analogy was cash is king. And I think the real correct statement would be access to cash is king. We want to make sure that our clients do have traditional cash emergency fund, but we also want to make sure that they do have a home equity line of credit. You know, in a dire emergency, having access to a home equity line of credit ahead of time before you need the money is a heck of a lot better than trying to get the home equity line of credit after you've been laid off from your job. You know, borrowing money at, you know, 8% or 8.5% is not ideal 
on a home equity line of credit, but it sure beats putting money on a credit card at 18 or 24%. Or forcing yourself to get out of a market if you didn't want to and liquidate investments if that wasn't the goal, obviously, at that stage. So just having that access is certainly a huge benefit. Yeah, when all your money is in like a pre-tax retirement plan, right? And you're dealing with most people are pre-59 and a half that we're working with. If that's where you have to go to access money, you're paying ordinary income tax on those distributions. Plus you're probably getting hit with a 10% pre-59 and a half penalty. And people are paying 40, 50% to access that money a lot steeper. And they they interrupt the compounding power of those investments. It's a heck of a lot cheaper to access your home equity line of credit for a period of time until you get back on your feet, you know, if that's an option. Does your advice change from the 401k versus Roth or traditional versus Roth component when you're getting into some of these higher wage earner or sales executives that are getting these big lump sum bonuses and things like that? Does the advice really change or do you still kind of gravitate towards the same advice when it comes to Roths and everything? Yeah. So I think once you, once you end up in the, you know, the highest possible tax bracket and, you know, income change of single versus married, when you're in that 35, 37% tax bracket, I can understand wanting to make the pre-tax contribution, hoping that you'll be in a lower tax rate later than life. On paper, if we knew exactly what the tax rates would be in the future, all of those decisions on pre-tax versus Roth would be a heck of a lot easier than they are today. But right. you know, we don't have a crystal ball. We do know that we are in historical low tax rates today. When it comes to people that are in the 22 or 24% tax bracket, and that 24% tax bracket is pretty wide with our younger client and that 35 to 50 year old, we are encouraging, you know, Roth versus pre-tax. We think that 22 and 24% tax brackets are really sweet spots for getting the heavy lifting out of the way, paying the tax today, ripping that bandaid off for tax-free access, tax-free potential in the future. I guess to that same extent, do you typically look more into backdoor Roth contributions versus maxing out the 401k? Or is that something that you've seen quite a bit on the sales executive side? Yeah. And especially once you get outside of people working in financial services, you do see a lot of people that have the third bucket within their 401k plan. They have that after tax 401k and pretty much all of the large tech and healthcare companies have that. So, you know, that allows you to get additional dollars into retirement savings. And some plans let you auto-convert the after-tax 401k automatically to Roth 401k within the 401k plan. You know, some plans don't have that built in. So you do that mega backdoor, you make your contribution to the after-tax, and then you move that money to the Roth IRA. So Every plan differs. Sometimes you can contribute $1 to the after-tax 401k and get your company match. There are other plans that say you have to fill up either the Roth 401k or the traditional pre-tax 401k bucket first, get your $22,500 in there, and then you can contribute to the after-tax. So there's not like a uniform way probably be easier if there was a uniform way on how everybody had to do it. But unfortunately, these plan documents differ and you're going to have a different rules to follow if you work at Salesforce versus the Hartford. So you just got to know your plan document and know how you can play that. But people have additional 
dollars that they can save, we would want to do so in a tax advantaged way. And we love having dollars in Roth anything, but if we can get the money to a Roth IRA, then that allows us access, which is one of my big keys to at least the contributions that we've made pre 59 and a half. So we love anytime we can get money into Roth something. It just gives you so many more options to choose from down the road. So it's basically diversification with the asset location. Take, so yeah, take your basis out, start a business. There's, there's all kinds of wonderful things that you can do with a Roth that you really can't do and a lot of other things. Just make sure you file your form 8606 people as we're around tax, tax time. So if you haven't done so, make sure you get it done. Hopefully they did an extension. <laughs> well, jumping a little bit off topic away from the sales executive side, one thing I wanted to discuss with you was the concept of virtual planning versus face-to-face -face side of things. So one improvement I've seen is that ability. I guess years ago, it wasn't very prevalent to, to have that ability to get financial planning without seeing somebody face-to-face, -face, like a local financial advisor. What are the pros and the cons that you see? Because you can do both. Obviously, you can work face-to-face. -face, you can also work virtually. What do you see as the pros and cons of working with somebody virtually instead of having to go face-to-face? -face? I think it's just more convenient. I think people can meet with you a little bit more easily virtually than than coming into an office. And 20 years ago, people were trying to find the best advisor in their community. Like that's what you did. Who's the best advisor in my small town or in my neighborhood? People today are looking for the very best financial planner, estate planner, accountant, mortgage planner in the country that understands them and their situation. So I just think really because of the pandemic, all the walls have been shattered on geographical boundaries and people just want to find the best person for them. I don't care where my mortgage officer is. I don't care where my CPA is. I just want to know that I can have a relationship with them and I can ask them questions and they can respond to me. So I think whether it's a 40 year old sales executive or my 78 year old father, everyone knows how to do this today to do a zoom or a teams or whatever. And it's been more accepted than ever. Well, and to that effect, there's so many financial planners that have those different niche groups they work with. The chances of you finding somebody in your small town or some state even that focuses on sales executives, for your point, you know, it's such a small subsection of people. So whereas you can widen that net and find somebody that's actually specialized in your field, it just makes things so much easier, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're all busy. Like I, I know my own situation, married, three kids, my wife homeschools the kids. I want my wife to be a part of these important conversations. It's not going to be logistically easy to get my wife to go meet with a CPA or an estate planning attorney across town. That's going to take a lot of effort. But can we let the kids watch some cartoons for a half an hour while we hop on a Zoom call together and we meet with you and talk about mortgage makes the most sense for us? Absolutely. And I just think people, when they have financial questions or they have something on their mind, they're much more likely to raise their hand and say, hey, Nick, do you have a few minutes? I've been thinking about this. When they know they're not going to have to find a babysitter and drive across town, it leads to, I think, better conversations. And people don't feel like they have to hold all their questions. 
all year long to the one time they're willing to come into the office for a face-to-face, -face, right? We can do an eight-minute Zoom call and answer a question that's top of mind today really easily. No babysitter required. It's so much more convenient, I feel like, for both people. I mean, the, the advisor and the client as well. So now I'm glad that that's evolved a bit in the financial planning world, for sure. Well, one hot topic with the financial advisors that I see all the time is pay structure and what's the best pay structure there is. Everybody has an opinion on this, but maybe walk us through the different various fee structures and the pros and cons to, to each of those. There are a lot, and I may miss some accidentally. I think the number one thing is find a trusted guide that you want to do business with and make sure that they are just transparent with you about how they are paid and what conflicts of interest exist. And I think the one thing that we realize is, or we should realize is that there's always some conflict of interest. There is no perfect compensation model. You just have to find the one that you think is the least bad option. All right. So there are some people who are advice only. And so you are paying them for advice to do a financial plan for you to tell you what you need to do. But if it's advice only, then they are not managing assets. They are not implementing strategies. They are just giving you, they are giving you the instruction guide. You still have to put the Lego kit together yourself. But at the end of the day, all advisors are either compensated through the advice they give or through commissions. So some of the other popular models would be what's called AUM or assets under management, where an advisor would charge you say a percentage of assets, say 1% to manage your investment dollars. So if you're had a million dollar portfolio, 1% and pay $10,000 a year, maybe it comes out in four $2,500 chunks per year. I would say the the pro there would say that it's very transparent, generally what the client is paying. There is some sort of vested interest for the client and advisor to be working together to grow those assets over time. The, I would say the negative or the, the pushback on that would say, well, is there, is, is there the same amount of work in managing a $500,000 portfolio as a $5 million portfolio? Are you doing the same work for a $5,000 fee versus a $50,000 fee? So that kind of breathed life into the flat fee model, where regardless of before managing $500,000 in assets or $5 million in assets, an advisor would charge you a flat fee of whatever, $10,000, $12,000 per year, and you know exactly what you're going to pay. And many times those people are still managing assets, but not always. They could be flat fee advice only. So there's kind of those different models that kind of get put together. And then some people charge commissions and I think commissions get like a really negative connotation. I don't think that it necessarily should be. I think it's important to be transparent to let people know how you're being compensated. I am receiving a commission to help make sure that you have the appropriate amount of life insurance or long-term care insurance, disability insurance. Um, and there's other products that could or could not come with a commission based upon how they are sold like an annuity or a mutual fund or even an individual stock. So if you just want to buy shares of Johnson & Johnson, does it make more sense to pay a one-time $10 commission? Or do you want your advisor to be monitoring that and give you advice and guidance on that? Where we have fallen as a firm is we are what's called a hybrid advisor. So we can receive both commissions 
and we charge an asset under management fee. We generally do not charge any financial planning fees. We think it's the, the least bad option. We like the asset under management model because I think that we have a vested interest in working towards goals together. As we mentioned before, it's not perfect, but we do things like we recommend that people take money out of their investment portfolio and pay off credit cards, right? Um, that's something that you would look for. You could ask your advisor a hypothetical scenario like, hey, if I had $30,000 in credit cards, but I had that money sitting in a brokerage account in short-term bonds, what would you recommend? I think that's a good litmus test. The advisor should recommend that you take money out of the investment portfolio to pay off the credit cards. That hurts the advisor from a compensation standpoint, but is the right thing for the client. With the, the hybrid model, it also allows us to receive commissions for certain product sales like life insurance, disability insurance, long-term care. Those are the predominant ones. Theoretically, we could refer that out to somebody else and have them implement the life insurance, disability insurance part of the equation. We like kind of the control freaks in us. We like being involved in that process to make sure that it gets done right. But there can certainly be some, some issues there with, does the recommendation make sense? So if I was a client, I would want to know like, well, how did you come to the conclusion that I needed? $1.4 million in term life insurance, or how did you determine that I needed a permanent policy versus a term policy? So there are some, some conflicts of interest arise in that hybrid model, but we think it's the late, the, the least bad option, at least for us and the clients that we serve, especially with the sales executives who are so busy. We like being the hub and the wheel that everything goes through us. And being involved in the underwrite, the life insurance underwriting, the disability underwriting, being the center of that, I think is important. So we don't have our clients split all over the place. Hey, have a conversation with this person, have a conversation with this person. That is just kind of the control freak in us, making sure the client has as good of an experience as possible. Right. I think it comes back down to the trust in the advisor. So Absolutely. you're going to have potentially great advisors on all these different fee structures, and you're going to have terrible advisors on all of them as well. So it's not like the fee structure makes the advisor good or bad. It, it ends up, honestly, in a lot of cases, becoming a selling point for some. But to your point, I mean, if you have access to all the different options, it just allows you if you're one of the good advisors, it allows you to actually give a comprehensive approach. Whereas if somebody's only focused on, all right, I'm an insurance salesman or I'm an annuity salesman, obviously you got to take that with a grain of salt just because there's, there is you know, heavy conflict of interest there when they have no other products to offer. Right. You know, whereas yours is totally different. That's just part of the program. Everybody knows for most part, they need some sort of life insurance get somebody that actually knows your situation that is understanding your other money that's obviously helping you manage stuff to actually have a say in that and to control that and to hopefully get you in touch with somebody that's very good at it you're able to refer that out to people or you know the companies that are offering very good right. options there you have control over that it's not like you're captive to one individual right. group that you're just trying to make a commission off of so I agree. I think I put a lot less credit in the fee structure as I do the advisor. So I definitely interview different advisors, get a good feel for who you want to work with. I obviously know the transparency of the fees, but you know, I wouldn't exclude somebody just because of the fee structure by any means. Yeah, absolutely. And like we still partner with someone on the insurance 
side, it's not like we're doing all of the due diligence and everything ourselves. So we split our commission with somebody else. We work with, with Lori Zine, who's tremendous, who is an expert on all of the underlying product stuff, who I can explain the client situation to her. And she'll go out and she'll run the numbers. Well, based upon the situation, these are the three companies that are going to make the most sense. These are the pros and cons of these companies, right? So I don't have to be an expert from A to Z, but I can go to Lori, who is, and we partner together on that, but the clients only have to work with me. Not that they can't work with Lori. She's a wonderful person. And, you know, sometimes she does get involved, especially with things as it relates to medical history and things like that, and what would be the best course of action, because she is an expert in that space and I'm not. But sometimes it, it just makes sense to pay a commission. Like you're in the mortgage industry. Think if instead of someone paying you a commission, they had to pay you 1% a year for the rest of their life for the home that they bought. Nobody would want to do that. I'm not opposed to that if people want to do that. But yeah, I don't see that being the model happening anytime soon. But no, there is truth to that. So I mean, there's very few pay structures different in the mortgage world. But I look at it as that you could work for somebody at a bank who may only get like a salary. They're not really incentivized or set up to really care too much about if your loan closes. There's not that incentive piece of it. Yes, there's certainly potential conflict of interest involved with anything, because obviously, if I was a bad mortgage person, I would advise people to obviously buy as expensive of a house as possible and pad my commission structure. But it comes down to the advice that you're given and the integrity of the person that you're getting the advice from. But you know, the fee structure by itself on mortgages or financial advice is not the end all be all. Put more emphasis on the actual planner, on the actual advisor. Yeah, and then make sure that you trust them and that they're being transparent. That's the key yeah. is if they're being shady about things or hiding things, if they can't tell you just like you did, what's the reason for all these fees? Why would you go this option versus the other? That's the problem. That's the red flag that you want to avoid, obviously. So, And I think one of the benefits of social media and just the age that we live in is it it does start to shine a light maybe on some of the bad players. Things like even Google reviews, I think has kind of changed the game for a lot of people, because if you're not doing a good job for your clients and then they're not becoming raving fans of what you're doing, like you're just not going to be successful in this business for very long. But if you take great care of your clients and you answer their questions and they see the value in what you're doing, they're going to tell other important people in their life about what you do. And they're not going to probably wake up and be like, I got to tell five people about Nick today. But if somebody comes to them and like, I have this question and I can't figure out what I should do with these stock options, I don't understand it. Then they'll say, you know what? You should meet with Nick. I work with Nick. It's been a great experience. And, you know, that's the name of the game and what both of us do. We do our jobs and people feel confident that we have done good by them and we've helped them and their family go from point A to point B and did it in an easier way than if they had done it by themselves, then they're glad to share your information with other people. And that's it. But if you're shady, like you said, you're hiding things, they're not going to make those introductions. They're probably embarrassed that they work with you. They're not going to tell other people. And also with social media and just any kind of video, things like that, I think you can quickly tell the type of person that you're working with. I think it's, it is nice to have the access to the videos and learn about what you do. I think people can quickly tell 
all right, this guy's here to help. He's not trying to sell me on something. He's not trying to con me on any kind of product that I shouldn't have. You can quickly tell the people that are the salesy aspect and more the relational. I want to actually help you achieve your goals. And I think that's the name of the game. So I, I certainly appreciate what you do. And I think you're great at it. I think anybody that looks at your website, they get some great content and they can get a much better feel for you as a person as well. But a lot of times if you're working with somebody virtually, you can rely on that to make sure that you can get along personality wise. So the stuff that you have on the website, I highly recommend people check that out. I guess before we kind of jump off here beyond your website, which is knowmyplan.com, which I'll put in the description here, what's the easiest way to get in touch with you and learn a little bit more about you if they would like to look at your services? Yeah, I would say probably the easiest way if you have LinkedIn, follow me on on, on LinkedIn. I, I post every day. I have a tricky last name, Scandinavian, Nielsen, N-I-E-L-S-E-N. I'm there all the time. Drop me a DM. Would love to connect with you. If you have one of those financial questions that you've been noodling on, you've been going back and forth with, you've been unable to answer, drop me a message. Let's chat for 15 minutes. Maybe I can give you a little bit of clarity and confidence in getting that question unlocked. Perfect. Well, Nick, any final thoughts, anything else you wanted to run through on this one? Adam, I, I appreciate you having me on. I wish you continued success with the podcast. Looks like rates are coming in a little bit in your favor. Hopefully we get some new houses built and yeah. uh, look forward to doing this again. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. It's been a pleasure. So hopefully we'll do these more often. Sounds great, Adam. Would love to. Okay. Thanks, Nick.